Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Chapter 9. A Marriage in High Life A month from the time at which this interview took place, everyone worth speaking of in Paris is busy talking of a singular marriage about to be celebrated in that smaller and upper circle which forms the apex of the fashionable pyramid. The niece and heiress of the Marquis de Savennes is about to marry a gentleman of whom the Faubourg Saint-Germain knows very little, But though the Faubourg knows very little, the Faubourg has, notwithstanding, a great deal to say, perhaps all the more from the very slight foundation it has for its assertions. Thus, on Tuesday, the Faubourg affirms that Monsieur Raymond Marol is a German and a political refugee. On Wednesday, the Faubourg rescinds. He is not a German. He is a Frenchman, the son of an illegitimate son of Philippe Egalité, and consequently nephew to the king, by whose influence the marriage has been negotiated. The Faubourg, in short, has so many accounts of Monsieur Raymond Marole that it is quite unnecessary for the Marquis de Savennes to give any account of him whatever, and he alone, therefore, is silent on the subject. Monsieur Marole is a very worthy man, a gentleman, of course, and his niece is very much attached to him. Beyond this... The Marquis does not condescend to enlighten his numerous acquaintance. How much more might the Faubourg have to say if it could for one moment imagine the details of a stormy scene which took place between the uncle and niece at the chateau in Normandy, when, kneeling before the cross, Valerie swore that there was so dreadful a reason for this strange marriage that, did her uncle know it, he would himself kneel at her feet and implore her to sacrifice herself to save the honor of her noble house. What might have been suggested to the mind of the Marquis by these dark hints, no one knew. But he ceased to oppose the marriage of the only scion of one of the highest families in France, with a man who could tell nothing of himself, except that he had received the education of a gentleman, and had a will strong enough to conquer fortune. The religious solemnization of the marriage was performed with great magnificence at the Madeleine. Wealth, rank, and fashion were equally represented at the déjeuner which succeeded the ceremonial, and Monsieur Marot found himself the center of a circle of the old nobility of France. It would have been very difficult, even for an attentive observer, to discover one triumphant flash in those light blue eyes, or one smile playing round the thin lips by which a stranger might divine that the bridegroom of today was the winner of a deep-laid and villainous scheme. He bore his good fortune, in fact, with such well-bred indifference, that the Faubourg immediately set him down as a great man, 
even if not one of the set, which was the seventh heaven in that Parisian paradise. And it would have been equally difficult for any observer to read the secret of the pale but beautiful face of the bride. Cold, serene, and haughty, she smiled a stereotyped smile upon all, and showed no more agitation during the ceremony than she might have done had she been personating a bride in an acted charade. It may be that the hour when any event, however startling, however painful, could move her from this cold serenity, had forever passed away. It may be that having outlived all the happiness of her life, she had almost outlived the faculty of feeling or of suffering, and must henceforth exist only for the world, a distinguished actress in the great comedy of fashionable life. She is standing in a window filled with exotics, which form a great screen of dark green leaves and tropical flowers, through which the blue spring sky looks in, clear, bright, and cold. She is talking to an elderly duchess, a languid and rather faded personage, dressed in ruby velvet, and equally distinguished for the magnificence of her lace and the artful composition of her complexion, which is as near an approach to nature as can be achieved by pearl powder. "'And you leave France in a month "'to take possession of your estates in South America?' she asks. "'In a month, yes,' says Valerie, "'playing with the large dark leaf of a magnolia. "'I am anxious to see my mother's native country. "'I am tired of Paris.' "'Really, you surprise me. "'The languid duchess cannot conceive the possibility "'of one being tired of a Parisian existence.' She is deep in her thirty-fourth platonic attachment, the object, a celebrated novelist of the transcendental school, and at this moment she sees him entering the room by a distant door. She strolls away from the window, carrying her perfumed complexion through the delighted crowd. Perhaps Monsieur Raymond Morol, standing talking to an old Bonapartiste general, whose breast is one constellation of stars and crosses, had only been waiting for this opportunity, for he advanced presently with soft step and graceful carriage towards the ottoman on which his bride had seated herself. She was trifling with her costly bridal bouquet as the bridegroom approached her, plucking the perfumed petals one by one and scattering them on the ground at her feet in very wantonness. Valerie, he said, bending over her, and speaking in tones which, by reason of the softness of their intonation, might have been tender, but for the want of some diviner melody from within the soul of the man, not having which they had the false jingle of a spurious coin. The spot in which the bride was seated was so sheltered by the flowers and the satin hangings which shrouded the window that it formed a little alcove, shut out from the crowded room. Valerie, he repeated, and finding that she did not answer, he laid his white ungloved hand upon her jeweled wrist. She started to her feet, drawing herself up to her fullest height, and shaking off his hand with a gesture which, had he been the foulest and most loathsome reptile crawling upon the earth's wide face, could not have bespoken a more intense abhorrence. "'There could not be a better time than this,' she said, "'to say what I have to say.' You may perhaps imagine that to be compelled to speak to you at all is so abhorrent to me that I shall use the fewest words I can. 
and use those words in their very fullest sense. You are the incarnation of misery and crime. As such, you can perhaps understand how deeply I hate you. You are a villain, and so mean and despicable a villain that even in the hour of your success you are a creature to be pitied, since from the very depth of your degradation you lack the power to know how much you are degraded. As such, I scorn and loathe you, as we loathe those venomous reptiles which, from their noxious qualities, defy our power to handle and exterminate them. And as your husband, madame, her bitter words discomposed him so little that he stooped to pick up a costly flower which in her passion she had thrown down and placed it carefully in his buttonhole. As your husband, madame, the state of your feelings towards me in that character is perhaps a question more to the point. You are right, she said, casting all assumption of indifference aside and trembling with scornful rage. That is the question. Your speculation has been a successful one. "'Entirely successful,' he replied, "'still arranging the flower in his coat. "'You have the command of my fortune. "'A fortune which many princes might be proud to possess,' "'he interposed, looking at the blossom, not at her. "'He may possibly have been a brave man, "'but he was not distinguished for looking in people's faces, "'and he did not care about meeting her eyes today. "'But if you think the words whose sacred import has been prostituted by us this day, have any meaning for you or me. If you think there is a lackey or a groom in this vast city, a ragged mendicant standing at a church door whom I would not sooner call my husband than the wretch who stands beside me now, you neither know me nor my sex. My fortune, you are welcome to it. Take it, squander it, scatter it to the winds. "'Spend it to the last farthing "'on the low vices that are pleasure "'to such men as you. "'But dare to address me "'with but one word from your false lips. "'Dare to approach me so near as to touch "'but the hem of my dress. "'And that moment I proclaim the story of our marriage "'from first to last. "'Believe me when I say, "'and if you look me in the face you will believe me. "'The restraining influence is very slight,' "'that holds me back from standing now "'in the centre of this assembly "'to proclaim myself a vile and cruel murderess, "'and you, my tempter and accomplice. "'Believe me when I tell you "'that it needs but one look of yours "'to provoke me to blazon this hideous secret "'and cry its details in the very marketplace. "'Believe this, and rest contented "'with the wages of your work.' "'Exhausted by her passion,' She sank into her seat. Raymond looked at her with a sneer. He despised her for this sudden outbreak of rage and hatred, for he felt how much his calculating brain and icy temperament made him her superior. "'You are somewhat hasty, madame, in your conclusions. Who said I was discontented with the wages of my work, when for those wages alone I have played the game in which, as you say, I am the conqueror?' For the rest, I do not think I am the man to break my heart for love of any woman breathing, as I never quite understood what the same weakness of the brain, which men have christened love, really is. 
and even were the light of dark eyes necessary to my happiness. I need scarcely tell you, madame, that beauty is very indulgent to a man with such a fortune as I am master of today. There is nothing on earth to prevent our agreeing remarkably well, and perhaps this marriage, which you speak of so bitterly, may be as happy as many other unions. I wonder whether Monsieur Moreau was right. I wonder whether this thrice-sacred sacrament, ordained by an almighty power, for the glory and the happiness of the earth, is ever, by any chance, profaned and changed into a bitter mockery or a wicked lie. Whether by any hazard these holy words were ever used in any dark hour of this world's history to join such people as had been happier far asunder, though they had been parted in their graves. Or whether, indeed, this solemn ceremonial has not so often united such people, with a chain no time has power to wear or lengthen, that it has at last, unto some ill-directed minds, sunk to the level of a pitiful and worn-out farce. Chapter 10 Animal Magnetism Nearly a month had passed since this strange marriage, and Monsieur Blue Rosset is seated at his little green-covered table, the lamplight falling full upon the outspread pack of cards, over which the blue spectacles bend with the same intent and concentrated gaze as on the night when the fate of Valerie hung on the lips of the professor of chemistry and pasteboard. Every now and then, with light and careful fingers, Monsieur Blue Rosset changes the position of some card or cards. Sometimes he throws himself back in his chair and thinks deeply. The expressionless mouth, which betrays no secrets, tells nothing of the nature of his thoughts. Sometimes he makes notes on a long slip of paper, rows of figures and problems in algebra over which he ponders long. By and by, for the first time, he looks up and listens. His little apartment has two doors, one which leads out onto the staircase, a second which communicates with his bedchamber. This door is open a very little, but enough to show that there is a feeble light burning within the chamber. It is in the direction of this door that the blue spectacles are fixed, when Monsieur Blue Rosset suspends his calculations in order to listen, and it is to a sound within this room that he listens intently. That sound is the labored and heavy breathing of a man. The room is tenanted. Good, says Monsieur Blue Rosset presently. The respiration is certainly more regular. It is really a most wonderful case. As he says this, he looks at his watch. Five minutes past eleven. Time for the dose, he mutters. He goes to the little cabinet from which he took the drug he gave to Valerie and busies himself with some bottles from which he mixes a draught in a small medicine glass. He holds it to the light, puts it to his lips, and then passes with it into the next room. There is a sound as if the person to whom he gave the medicine made some faint resistance. But in a few minutes, Monsieur Blue-Rosset emerges from the room carrying the empty glass. He restates himself before the green table and resumes his contemplation of the cards. Presently, a bell rings. So late, mutters Monsieur Blue-Rosset, it is most likely someone for me. 
he rises, sweeps the card into one pack, and going over to the door of his bedroom, shuts it softly. When he has done so, he listens for a moment, with his ear close to the woodwork. There is not a sound of the breathing within. He has scarcely done so when the bell rings for the second time. He opens the door communicating with the staircase and admits a visitor. The visitor is a woman, very plainly dressed and thickly veiled. Monsieur Blue Rosset, she says inquiringly. The same, madame. Pray enter and be good enough to be seated. He hands her a chair at a little distance from the green table and as far away as he can place it from the door of the bedchamber. She sits down and he appears to wait for her to speak. She says, I have heard of your fame, monsieur, and come... Nay, madame, he says, interrupting her. You can raise your veil, if you will. I perfectly remember you. I never forget voices, Mademoiselle de Savennes. There is no shade of impertinence in his manner as he says this. He speaks as though he were merely stating a simple fact, which it is as well for her to know. He has the air, in all he does or says, of a scientific man who has no existence out of the region of science. Valerie, for it is indeed she, raises her veil. Monsieur, she says, you are candid with me, and it will be the best for me to be frank with you. I am very unhappy. I've been so for some months past, and I shall be so until my dying day. One reason alone has prevented my coming to you long ere this, to offer you half my fortune for such another drug as that which you sold to me some time past. You may judge, then, that reason is a very powerful one, since, though death alone can give me peace, I yet do not wish to die. But I wish to have at my command a means of certain death. I may never use it at all. I swear never to use it on anyone but myself. All this time the blue spectacles have been fixed on her face. And now Monsieur Blue Rosset interrupts her. And now for such a drug, mademoiselle, you would offer me a large sum of money, he asks. I would, monsieur. I cannot sell it to you, he says, as quietly as though he were speaking of some unimportant trifle. You cannot, she exclaims. No, mademoiselle, I am a man absorbed entirely in the pursuit of science. My life has been so long devoted to science only that perhaps I may have come to hold everything beyond the circle of my little laboratory too lightly. You asked me some time since for a poison, or at least you were introduced to me by a pupil of mine, at whose request I sold you a drug. I had been twenty years studying the properties of that drug. I may not know them fully yet, but I expect to do so before this year is out. I gave it to you, and for all I know to the contrary, it may in your hands have done some mischief. He pauses here and looks at her for a moment, but she has borne the knowledge of her crime so long, and it has become so much a part of her, that she does not flinch under his scrutiny. I placed a weapon in your hands, he continues, and I had no right to do so. I never thought of this at that time, but I have thought of it since. For the rest, I have no inducement to sell you the drug you ask for. Money is of little use to me, except in the necessary expenses of the chemicals I use. These, he points to the cards, give me enough for those expenses. Beyond those, my wants amount to some few francs a week. 
"'Then you will not sell me this drug. "'You are determined?' she asks. "'Quite determined.' "'She shrugs her shoulders. "'As you please. "'There is always some river within reach of the wretched, "'and you may depend, monsieur, "'that they who cannot support life "'will find a means of death. "'I will wish you a good evening.' "'She is about to leave the room when she stops, "'with her hand upon the lock of the door, "'and turns around. "'She stands for a few minutes, motionless and silent, "'holding the handle of the door, "'and with her other hand upon her heart. "'Monsieur Blue Rosset has the faintest shadow "'of a look of surprise in his expressionless countenance.' "'I don't know what is the matter with me tonight,' she says, "'but something seems to root me to this spot. "'I cannot leave this room.' "'You are ill, mademoiselle, perhaps. "'Let me give you some restorative.' "'No, no, I am not ill.' "'Again she is silent. "'Her eyes are fixed, not on the chemist, "'but with a strange vacant gaze upon the wall before her. "'Suddenly she asks him, "'Do you believe in animal magnetism?' "'Madame, I have spent half my lifetime "'in trying to answer that question, "'and I can only answer it now by halves. "'Sometimes no, sometimes yes. "'Do you believe it possible for one soul "'to be gifted with the mysterious prescience "'of the emotions of another soul, "'to be sad when that is sad, "'though utterly unconscious of any causes for sadness, "'and to rejoice when that is happy, having no reason for rejoicing. I cannot answer your question, madame, because it involves another. I never yet have discovered what the soul really is. Animal magnetism, if it ever becomes a science, will be a material science, and the soul escapes from all material dissection. Do you believe, then, that by some subtle influence whose nature is unknown to us, we may have a strange consciousness of the presence or the approach of some people, conveyed to us by neither the hearing nor the sight, but rather as if we felt that we were near. You believe this possible, madame, or you would not ask the question. Perhaps. I have sometimes thought that I had this consciousness, but it related to a person who is dead. Yes, madame. "'and you will think me mad. "'Heaven knows, I think myself so. "'I feel as if that person were near me tonight.' "'The chemist rises, "'and going over to her, feels her pulse. "'It is rapid and intermittent. "'She is evidently violently agitated, "'though she is trying with her utmost power "'to control herself. "'But you say that this person is dead?' he asks. "'Yes, he died some months since.' "'You know that there are no such things as ghosts. "'I am perfectly convinced of that. "'And yet?' he asks. "'And yet I feel as though the dead were near me tonight. "'Tell me, there is no one in this room but ourselves. "'No one. "'And that door, it leads... "'into the room in which I sleep. "'And there is no one in there?' she asks. "'No one.' "'Let me give you a sedative, madame. "'You are certainly ill. "'No, no, monsieur, you are very good. "'I am still weak from the effects of a long illness. "'That weakness may be the cause of my silly fancies of tonight. "'Tomorrow I leave France, perhaps forever. 
she leaves him, but on the steep dark staircase she pauses for a moment and seems irresolute, as if half determined to return. Then she hurries on, and in a minute is in the street. She takes a circuitous route towards the house in which she lives. So plainly dressed and thickly veiled, no one stops to notice her as she walks along. Her husband, Monsieur Morol, is engaged at a dinner given by a distinguished member of the Chamber of Peers. Decidedly, he has held winning cards in the game of life. And she, forever haunted by the past, with weary step, goes onward to an unknown future. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.